Amen. You may be seated. Our text is from Galatians chapter 4. We're continuing to work our way through this letter. Galatians 4 this morning. If you are using a house Bible, I will tell you the page in just a minute. It is 974, Galatians 4. Sometimes in a sermon, you may have seen this, a pastor just sort of gets to a point when he, um, maybe he's in the middle of arguing for a certain um, interpretation of the text or theological concept or whatever it is, and you almost just see him kind of pause and just, switch into pastoring mode, you know? I mean, all of the text is preached with a pastoral heart, but sometimes it just, it just it's like that just really bursts forth in, in a big way. Um, and, and that's what you have here in this text. Paul has, of course, been in sort of argument mode. He's been uh, preaching the gospel. He's been trying to correct a false understanding of the gospel that had been being promulgated by false teachers and had, uh, was tempting the, the Galatian Christians to go away from the true gospel. Paul had been arguing that the good news is that people can be justified before God on the basis of Jesus Christ, on the basis of Christ's obedience to God on the basis of the righteousness and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on behalf of his people, on that basis and on that basis alone, God's people could be justified before God. As they put faith in Christ, they are pronounced righteous by God. Just like Abraham, who was declared to be righteous just on the basis of faith. And this, of course, is in contradiction to the false teaching that's been coming to the churches that says, no, you have to also become a Jew, perform these certain rituals, you have to obey the law, you have to observe the what Paul viewed as the shadows of the Old Testament ceremonial religion, while in fact they were ignoring the substance of those things, which was Christ. And so Paul came preaching the gospel, the good news. Your salvation is not dependent on your rituals or your obedience, but upon Christ and Christ alone. And friends, that's the good news that I'm preaching to you this morning. That's the good news I hope is in your heart. That is the gospel on which you are depending. The gospel of salvation through Christ alone. And Paul has come now to this point in the letter when he's just really at a point of frustration. You ever uh, tried to talk to somebody about the truth and you almost got to a point of just frustration with them because they seemed to be just blind to it. And this is, you, you just sense this coming out. In his absence, these false teachers had come in and the, the Galatians, their heads were so quickly turned from this true apostle who cared for their souls to these false teachers who were making much of them. And so Paul in this section is going to get very, very personal. This is one of the most personal sections of this letter. He's going to appeal to them on the basis of their personal relationship with him to heed the message that he's been trying to get across to them. So look at the text beginning in verse 12, Galatians 4 and verse 12. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me 
as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus, what then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you might make much of them. It is good, always good, to be made much of for a good purpose. But And not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. So that's our text. And you see what I'm saying? He's not really making any sort of logical, any direct logical or theological arguments in the section. So much as, I mean, what you have here really is the voice of a perplexed pastor. The voice of a frustrated father. One who's also fearful. The voice of an anxious apostle. This is um, this is uh, a loving parent who's out of their mind over their wayward child. Um, something that, in many ways, we can we can relate to, and we say, "Yeah, you 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 feel you see his heart really coming out here." And I want to preach to you this morning on the power of a personal relationship, of the power of personal relationship. And I want to summarize the sermon with these two statements to start off with. Number one, truth must always win the day. I think we're agreed on that. But truth must always win the day. Look at verse 16. He says to them, Have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? Paul was committed to the truth. He was committed to speaking truth to them. Truth has to win the day. We do not do anyone any favor by soft-pedaling an inconvenient truth. Any relationship that's preserved at the cost of truth is going to be shallow and ultimately fleeting. So he is committed to telling them the truth. Um, Jesus was committed to that. John chapter 6, Jesus spoke some really hard truths to his disciples, to his, the many, there were throngs of people at that point following him. But the Bible says that many of his quote-unquote disciples turned back and stopped following him anymore after he did that. And then in John chapter 8, he said this, in John 8, 31, If you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Right? Freedom Freedom always and only comes through the truth. Truth must always win the day. But secondly, truth that is really impactful is usually received in the context of personal relationship. Truth that is really impactful is usually, ordinarily, received in the context of personal relationship. The Galatian Christians' acceptance of the gospel had come originally in the context of their acceptance of Paul. They accepted that he was an authentic apostle, that he was someone who was truly empowered by God, that that he spoke the truth, that he really cared about their souls. They were they believed that. They received him, and in receiving him, also received his, his message. In receiving the message, they received him. The truth came to them in the context of personal relationship. And friends, so it is 
most of the time with us. There's an old saying that no one cares how much you know until they know how much you care, right? And while I think that's probably not universally true, it is often borne out to be the case. Somebody told, said a long time ago, your walk talks and your talk talks, but your walk talks louder than your talk talks. Your example, your life, your personal relationship with somebody, that says a lot. Sometimes it overshadows what you say with your mouth. Truth that really is impactful so often comes in the context of personal relationship. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Let me just give you some examples of the way it worked with Paul and his ministry to people. And he made reference to this often. Of course, um, our brother read from 2 Corinthians this morning and all of that personal relationship, that, that history between Paul and the Corinthian church that he was appealing to and making reference to and their love for him and his, their acceptance of him and now their struggles and, and, and where they, they were tempted to go away. Paul had the same relationship or a similar kind of relationship with other churches, the church in, in Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5. Our gospel, Paul says, came to you not only in word, but in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, for you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. What was it that influenced the Thessalonians? It was not only the words of Paul, but it was the fact that they watched him. They, they, they saw these men and the impact that the gospel had had on their lives, and they imitated that. Later on in that same book, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul says, For yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain, but though we had already suffered and were shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring, he says, from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, so there's the truth, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, or with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you. Like, nurse, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves. Because you had become very dear to us. It was, it was the truth, make no mistake, it was the truth that carried the day, but it, all, it came to the Thessalonians in the context of this this relationship that they had with Paul and these other ministers who came into their midst. Paul had this kind of relationship with Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 3. Paul warns his young, this young man that he considers his son in the faith. He warns him against false teachers who have a, an appearance of godliness. And he says this, in contrast, verse 10, you, however, have followed, have carefully observed my teaching, but not only my teaching, my what? My conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfast, my persecutions and sufferings. Timothy, you had a front row seat to all of this. There's, there's this, um, this personal relationship that, that is a part of his ministry to Timothy, um, and Timothy's observing of his life has, uh, ha has had a great impact on Timothy. In Philemon, Paul does something similar. He appeals to Philemon to forgive and to receive uh, his former slave, Onesimus, and he appeals to him on the basis of their relationship. Verse 8, Though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required... Yet, for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. And then down in verse 17, he says, 
For if you consider me a partner, your partner, then receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing, he says, of you owing me even your own self. So even the basis of his appeal here is largely on on the strength of of their relationship. Um, And I think that these texts, our text here and, and these many others, bear testimony then of the power of relationship. And I think that we see the power of personal relationship manifested in this text in five ways this morning. Number one, in the power of example. Take note of the way he begins in verse 12. Brothers, I entreat you, he writes, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. Uh, This is probably a reference to some things that he said earlier. If you remember back in chapter 2, and it's verses 11 and following, if you want to mark it down for looking at it later, Paul had talked in this very book about the way that he had lived in their midst. And what he had, it came in the context of actually his chiding Peter, because Peter um, had begun to act hypocritically before pressure from false teachers that had come up from Jerusalem. Peter, along with Paul, had been uh, living like Gentiles, Paul says. In other words, um, they were not... um, necessarily following all of the Old Testament food laws. They were observing, not observing all of the Jewish holy days. And most importantly, they did not, did not require their followers to be circumcised in every case. And so Paul says, this is the way we lived among you. Um, in other, and why could Paul do that? Paul did that because he recognized that they were freed from the law from its rituals and from its demands for perfection. The fulfillment of the legal covenant was in Christ alone. So that was the way that Paul lived, especially when he was with the Gentiles. He would live as the Gentiles. And and this, this has already been sort of the background of this letter. So I think when he gets to this point and he says, become as I am, for I have become as you are, um, he say, he's appealing to his own example as to how to live in the light of Christ. Live like me, he says. Look, this is the way I was before you. Follow my example. And this is not the only time that Paul presses his example. He told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, be imitators of me, even as I am an imitator of Christ, right? He, he told the Thessalonians also in 1 Thessalonians 1 6, he says, were imitators of us and of Christ. So this is an ongoing thing. In, in many of the churches, he's, he's encouraging and approving of people's following of his example. Boy, what an awesome thing to feel the weight of that responsibility, right? And if you're um, a leader, if you're a dad, you're a mom, it's, uh, it's a great weight of responsibility to con- consider that you are to be the example as a minister, um, to feel the weight of that, um, and, and to know that the only way, the only way that that will ever um, be fruitful and, and be upheld is by the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the pow- there is a power in example that Paul is holding out to them. Um, the truth is that we tend to become like those we trust, those that we admire, those that we look to and, and hang out with, which highlights the importance of whatever examples that uh, we, we put into our lives. And and, and let me just stop here and make an application for parents. If your parents um, and, and, and you have children, 
Um, I hope you know to the best of your ability what kinds of examples your children are encountering. Many of you are homeschooling your children. And, uh, but the truth is, for most homeschoolers, their life is not bound by the four walls of the homeschool anymore. Um, they're out there in the homeschool co-op on Monday, or they're in the sports program on Friday, or they're in this thing or that thing, various drama and, and music groups, and all this, just all different kinds of things, right? There's so many opportunities, and in many cases those can be very helpful, but it's also important for us um, to recognize the power of example, um, to shape the minds and the hearts of those who observe, those who admire those examples, uh, and to consider not just the adults that who run the organizations that our children are involved in, but the, but even even the young people themselves. Um, and for, for young people to consider who, who you're looking up to, who you're surrounding yourself with, what kind of examples you are admiring. Why do you admire those you admire? What is it about them that draws out your admiration? Is it a fleshly admiration? Or is it the admiration of true character and love and zeal for Christ? Be very, very careful about the power of of example. One of the most powerful abilities that we have is the ability to influence people by example. Uh, Timothy had Paul. I wonder how much of what Timothy became was caught rather than taught by the apostle. Just by observation, by watching, by traveling with him, by seeing him, by listening to him. The disciples of our Lord had Christ Himself. This was our Lord's model, wasn't it? He came not merely to dump some teaching on the disciples, but to live with them, essentially. That's what He did. There's the power of example. I have a great, um, just a great deal of thanksgiving for the example that was set by my believing parents and believing grandparents and believing uncles and believing aunts. And I have no doubt that any, any goodness in me, to, to whatever degree that is, it, it has nothing to do with me, but with, with the grace of God um, in bringing those examples into my life. I stand in a very different place than I would be without those. And, and you as well. Um, many of you who have believing uh, family, which is um, uh, just highlights uh, the importance of, if you're a young person, the importance of who you marry, who will be an influence on you. One of the greatest shaping influences on your life will be your spouse. For like it or not, for better or for worse, you say, no, I don't care what anybody else says, even my spouse, I'm just going to do whatever God says. Well, yes, and amen, but you will inevitably be shaped to some degree by your spouse, and your children will sure be shaped by the example of that man or that woman that you marry, young person. That's not a small thing. Um, Parents, don't underestimate the power of your example. Not only about, it's not only about what you say to them during Bible time or you know, that you bring them to church, but the power of your example and the way that you live. And boy, that makes every parent I know quake in their boots because none of us is the example that we ought to be. And so we all we, we say to our children, you know, look to Christ. But you know, they're going to see Christ, uh, they should be able to see Christ reflected in us um, to a greater and greater and greater degree. And seeing that Christ formed in a person, I mean, it's just a, a sweet and wonderful thing and just has an incredible power to encourage, to motivate someone else. Some of my greatest encouragements have been reading the biographies 
the testimonies of someone else's life, life and uh, the power of their example to spur me on to a greater love for the Lord and faithfulness in His service. I, I learned to preach to a large degree by example. Not, I mean, I went to seminary and sat in classes and they said, okay, here's how to make a sermon, okay? Step one, step two, whatever they, they did. I remember a little of that, and I'm sure it was helpful in its way. But you know, a large, to a large degree, uh, what shaped me was just listening to hours and hours and hours and hours and hours of very faithful expositors of the Word of God, and particularly a pastor that that uh, had great influence on me in, during my seminary days. So I'm very thankful for those kind of things. I think of the example of hospitality that was set by our former pastor. When I first came to this church, I served with him for several years. And that man and that woman, his wife, had um, people in their home almost every week. Almost every single week. And sometimes multiple times a week. They had young people who were maybe in a difficult place and maybe they didn't have believing family. They would host them in their homes, sometimes for weeks on end or months or even years on a few occasions. and, and, and those things have been so shaping and helpful to me. And I just want to remind us all that truth wins the day, but it comes in the context of personal relationships so often. And our example carries a great power. I ask you, what does your example teach? Your example. What is it teaching those who watch you? What effect is your personal relationship having on those around you? And them on you. And there may be somebody that needs to pull back from some personal relationship because of the negative example, uh, the negative influence that that's having. There's just a great power. Paul holds this up as, um, as something to be followed. Become like me, he says, as I follow Christ. You see, secondly in this text, the power of personal relationship is manifested in the ironic power of weakness. (laughs) You don't think of weakness as being a power, but it is, ironically, a kind of power that he describes here in the end of verse 12. He says, in, in, in recalling the very beginnings of his ministry among the Galatian churches, he says, you did me no wrong. You know that it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. And of course, their warm reception of Paul was not merely ordinary kindness or just humanity. They received him as an apostle, as a messenger, an angel. Another translation is a messenger from God, or even as Christ himself. And Paul would, would never, never claimed in any sense to be Christ in his essence, but he did claim to be an ambassador for Jesus Christ, and they received him as such. But here's the point. This conviction of his apostleship and his authority was in stark contrast to the way he appeared in his personal presence. His physical presence did not exude strength and power and, you know, just a great weight. Uh, In fact, uh, some of his detractors would say this, oh, he writes a good letter. But when he comes in person, he's nothing to be, you know, he's nothing to be afraid of or to be in awe of. His presence, his personal presence was weak and frail, apparently. As he calls it here, he he had a bodily ailment. He perhaps had some sort of sickness or disability. He calls it in Corinthians, the passage we read earlier, a thorn in his body or a thorn in his flesh. Um, very possibly uh, it was due to the suffering that he endured for the cause of Christ, right? We know this man, what was he, 
beaten and whipped and left for dead and shipwrecked and on and on and on it goes. I don't know what that did to his physical appearance and to his strength and stamina personally, bodily, but it must have had a great toll. Uh, Many people have thought that perhaps it was actually an eyesight problem. Maybe his face was disfigured because of the beatings that he had received and to such a degree that he lost most or all of his eyesight. Uh, As he says, you would have plucked out your eyes, which of course we use as a figure of speech, right? You would pluck out your right eye for me, but maybe... Maybe he meant it as a literally a reference to his sight. I don't know. But in any case, whatever the situation was exactly, um, he had this, this deep affliction, this bodily problem, this ailment, um, this affliction in his flesh. And remember that he prayed multiple times, God, please heal me of this. And the Lord did not see fit to heal him. In fact, the Lord's answer came in two forms. Number one, God said, my strength is sufficient for you. And praise God, amen, anybody who's suffering, anybody who's afflicted, anybody who's disabled, so to speak, anybody who has any kind of of, of affliction in any sense should be able to say, God's grace is more than sufficient for what He's called me to do. But secondly, God told him, my power is made perfect in weakness. My power is perfected in your weakness. By using such a weak man, God was demonstrating that the power of Paul's ministry, and who can deny the power of it, right? I mean, it literally shaped the world. Even non-believers have said that uh, Paul's uh, ministry shaped Christianity in, in a huge way. The power of Paul's ministry, though, was clearly not from his own personal bearing, his strength, his charisma, whatever. His weakness magnified God's power, God's glory. This is why he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning of verse 26, that not many of you, brothers, not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. How would you like to be sitting in that church in Yeah, thank you, brother. Appreciate that. Appreciate that. Not many of us were wise, but that's what he says. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are, so that, here's why, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And Paul, even though he says, now Corinthian people, you you pushed me into boasting about my apostleship, all right? But he said, I speak as a fool. I have nothing to boast in. I have, I'm weak. Christ is strong. All of his disability was no disability at all. And that's really true. There are no disabilities in the kingdom of God. Disabilities only make Christ shine all the brighter when he works through that broken vessel. This is why a stuttering Moses is chosen as the leader of God's people. God's regular pattern is to display his strength in and through the weakness of his servants. This is why the gospel continues to progress and to change lives in spite of the frailties and the failures of his messengers. So stop saying... If only I were better, smarter, more interesting, stronger. Say instead, God, glorify Yourself, even in my weakness. In the next couple of verses, um, you see the power of love. The power of mutual affection. Paul had risked his life to bring the gospel to them, and he testifies, now, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. They would have gone to any length possible to help him. Such was their affection and their appreciation of him at one point when he had first come to them. He would brought them into a state of blessedness, as he says, uh, of joy in the gospel. 
And this is what makes the change in their attitude and their relationship with him so stunning, right? Only a turning away from the gospel can account for their defection from him whom they had once loved so deeply. And so in verse 16, he appeals to the strength of their mutual love. He says, have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? I'm not your enemy. You know that I loved you. You loved me. You accepted me. There was this mutual bond. You had received me as a true minister, one who cared for your souls. Are you going to turn against me because I'm speaking to you the truth? And what a blessed thing it is, actually, when you can speak hard truth to someone because of the strength of your personal relationship. You know what I mean? That the relationship can bear that. What a blessed thing. What a blessed thing when you can speak hard truth to somebody because they know that you really love them. And in fact, that's the reason that Paul warned them in such strong language, is that he loved them. If he didn't love them, he wouldn't have done what he did and, and rebuking and trying to deliver them from a doctrine that would eventually damn them to hell if they, if they believed it. You see, this love that he has for them, this love that they had at one time for him, and his love is being tested. It's being stretched. It's motivating what he's writing here. This, this personal relationship that they had. And you know, anytime you minister to someone in a personal relationship, um, that's going to be um, tested to some degree or another. Every time. Because, I mean, unless you're, you know, in a personal, I mean, unless that person is like perfect. Um, Unless that person is Jesus, then, then that, that relationship is going to need sometimes for you to speak things that are true, that are, that are hard to speak. And, and it's that love that is characterized by patience with them. You know, it's, it's a blessed thing that Paul just didn't just write them off. Well, I guess they're just, you know, I thought they were Christians. I guess they're not. Well, so bad, too bad for them. But he, he's patient with them. He, he meets them where they are, not where, where they ought to be. And he's appealing to them and he's um, urging them to come back. Uh, sometimes in those kinds of relationships and those kinds of moments, we don't even know what to say, right? And, and you sort of feel like Paul ends up that way. The very last word of, of verse 20, I mean, the very last, last things he says is, I'm perplexed. I, I don't know what to say to you. I, I, have you ever been there in a relationship where, where you needed, you felt like you needed to speak truth? And in, it's almost like you didn't quite know what to say even. Uh, this is where Paul is. Um, love, um, this relationship is what um, forms the context for his being able to speak so um, openly with them. And it moves him to do that. But you know, what? Uh, that kind of relationship, this loving relationship also means it means pain. Paul would have probably had less pain, less anxiety, less um, frustration if he didn't care for the churches of Galatia. In fact, remember when he's listing all of his um, afflictions, he lists shipwreck, beatings, um, stranded, what, all, all the different things. You know, he's bitten by snake. I don't know if he mentioned that. You know, all these different things he suffers. And then he says, and t on top of that, the anxiety of caring for all of the churches. It, it is a true um, anxiety. And, and anytime you are in a personal relationship of loving brothers and sisters, of love between God's people where, where you're speaking truth in the context of that loving relationship, there's going to be pain. And that is a testimony of the genuineness of that compassion. A relationship that has no pain is a relationship where there is no love. And so 
what a blessing it is when a true minister cares for his flock and shares in the sufferings of Christ. Or when a Christian sister bears the burden of another sister, when she herself is relatively free of burdens, her life is going well, but she enters into that burden of that other sister, and she now carries a kind of mental anguish of soul, but she's sharing in the sufferings of Christ on behalf of his people. Loving other people, getting involved in their lives means getting messy and potentially being hurt. But in doing so, we share in Christ who out of love came into all of our brokenness. Amen? But not only is there the power of love in the context of personal relationship, not only is there the power of love, but there's also a kind of deceiving version of that, a deceitful version that is the power of self-love. And that was manifest in the motivations of the um, false teachers. Look at verse 17. They, the false teachers, make much of you. They are, another translation is, they are zealous for you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. By turning the Galatians away from Christ alone, the false teachers were really shutting them out of the people of God, even while they were claiming to bring them in fully to the people of God. But their real motivation, Paul is touching on here, is that the Galatians may make much of them. In other words, they're motivated by self-love, by self-promotion. Their desire, and you see this in chapter 6 a little bit, as well as the beginning of the book, their desire is to pressure the Galatians into... Um, accepting circumcision as a means of justification and following the law and so forth. Their, their, their motivation is to pressure the Galatians into doing those things because they, the false teachers, want to curry favor with the Jerusalem faction, the, the party of the circumcision, those whom they sort of admire and sort of fear. Pride. Self-advancement are often attributed in the New Testament to as the motives for false teachers. In other words, there are people who appear very loving, very earnest, very zealous. And you know, in, in, maybe they are kind of zealous after a fashion. Um, Paul says in verse 18, it is always good to be made much of or to be zealous for a good purpose, for a good cause. But sometimes people are zealous and it's all in a false cause. Uh, In Romans chapter 10, Paul um, spoke about the unbelieving Jews And he says that they have a zeal for God, but not according to what? Not according to knowledge. And so I want to warn all of us. I mean, I think the Scripture is here to warn us not to mistake a preacher's or a speaker's zeal or enthusiasm or even their apparent love for you as a sign that God's hand is truly on this person. Not all zeal, even in the quote-unquote Christian realm, not all zeal is according to knowledge. And not every quote-unquote Christian who befriends you is motivated by a love for Christ and, and, and of His truth. So there is this deceiving, deceptive kind of power uh, of love that is out there. But then there is finally in this text the power of 
spiritual childbirth. We're talking about personal relationship, intimacy between the people of God, between people. I don't know how much more of an intimate picture that you can paint in terms of a human relationship than between a mother and a child. So here's the power of spiritual childbirth. Verse 19, my little children for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Which is, to me, it seems like a strange sort of mixture of metaphors because you have the Corinthians pictured as like a pregnant woman, a baby being formed in her womb as if, the old self is dying and new life is about to come forth in them. Um, Christ is being formed in them. But it's Paul who has the labor pains. <laughs> it's his toil, it's his sweat, his tears that were expended to bring the gospel to them and to plead with them and to warn them and to rebuke them and to try to bring them on to now a full uh, knowledge of Christ, a fuller knowledge of Christ. And so he's perplexed because he thought that he had already given birth, as it were, that they had already been spiritually born, but now, because of the influence of the false teachers, he's afraid that maybe it was false labor. And he's having to labor again in order to ensure that they are, in fact, committed to Christ and to the true gospel of Jesus Christ. In one sense, the pains of childbirth uh, are a reference to the whole of the sanctification process, really. Romans 8, I think, alludes to this. It says that the creation is subjected to futility and is in pain. Even we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit are in, we're groaning together with all of the creation and our groanings, our groans are the anguish of labor. This world and we who are born into the age to come are about to give birth, as it were, to, to the new reality, to the consummate um, salvation that is in Christ Jesus, as Paul calls it, the redemption even of our bodies. We're waiting for this. He says we're saved in hope. We don't hope that seeing is not hope. We're still waiting for this. So there's a period, this whole period of time we consider to be our, our labor until that great day in which Christ is fully formed in us. And what a great way to picture it. Christ being formed in you. That is, that's Christianity. Christianity is not merely a set of theological propositions. Christianity is not merely an assent to a certain prescribed list of things to do and things not to do, um, or a, 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 a greater measure of obedience to those certain things, or the performing of certain rituals. Christianity is about Christ being formed in you. It is about a union with Christ by the grace of God that is more and more manifest. And this is what Paul is laboring for. He's labored in the beginning and now it seems like everything's kind of going backward. And until that day when the power of the gospel comes through ministers and through believers, uh, until that day the power of God comes through them to uh, those people who labor and toil and pray and teach and warn and counsel and rebuke and encourage and disciple other people day after day after day with joys and tears, with ups and downs in the context of personal relationship until the day that Christ Jesus is fully formed in them. That labor... That labor, like Paul's labor, is really God's labor. Because it is God who brings forth Christ in the souls of men. And what a glorious labor it is. And make no mistake, and you won't if you become a pastor or if you become a parent. Uh, make no mistake, it is labor. But it is a glorious labor.
it is an exhausting joy. Like a mother giving birth. It is exhausting, it is fearful, it is painful, but in the end, nothing else compares to it. And I think that's the way Paul felt about these people. He had given birth to them. It was like his even his anguish for them now was in the hope that he would see Christ formed in them. And if that were the case, all of the pain is worth it, right? That's what the mama says at the end. Like, uh, I love this baby, but I'm not sure it was worth it, you know? No, she says, I forget all about all of that in light of this little one I'm holding. Everything else pales in comparison to this. And that's the joy of what it is to disciple another believer, to bring them into growth, into faith. This is the joy, the anguish and the joy of being a disciple or being a pastor, of being a minister, of being a brother or sister who speaks truth in the context of your personal relationships to see Christ formed in that person. All of this takes place in all of this text here. There is an intimacy between the minister and his people, between the apostle and the Galatians. Truth is brought home in the context of personal relationship, which ought to highlight for us the importance of the local church, of brothers and sisters who know you and who you know, the importance of the relationship that you have with specific church leaders, elders who care for your souls. It should highlight the impact of the kinds of influences and relationships and friendships that you allow in your life. It highlights the life-altering importance of who you marry and the inestimable inestimable influence of a dad, a mom, on the lives of their children. May God cause all of our relationships to be redemptive relationships. Our Father, we are thankful for this word today and we pray that it would be used by your Spirit to form Christ in us to a greater degree today. In Jesus' precious name, amen.